This podcast is supported by Rider Supply Chain Solutions. Rider has nearly 80 years of experience helping customers in North America, the UK, and Asia transform their supply chains by delivering the best in operational execution. Rider provides a full range of services from optimizing day-to-day logistics operations to synchronizing the supply of parts and finished goods with customer demand. Visit us at rider.com. That's R-Y-D-E-R.com. And now, on to the podcast. An NGO is making dramatic progress toward creating sustainable supply chains from producers all the way to the retail shelf. Now, if we can only get consumers to care. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman. Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Not to overstate the dilemma, but there's a wide gap between the theoretical willingness of consumers to support sustainable products and their actions when they get to the store. Maybe it's just a question of label fatigue, too many so-called sustainable items from which to choose, or too many organizations out there trying to accomplish the same goals, resulting in a lot of redundant efforts. Still, a lot of progress has been made since the creation of the first fair trade certification label for coffee more than 25 years ago. One of the pioneers behind that effort, the Dutchman Nico Rosen, was a director of Solidaridad, the international organization dedicated to responsible food production. My guest today is Andrian Grimar, director of economic development for Solidaridad North America. She fills us in on the organization's progress to date, as well as the challenges that it faces in raising consumer awareness of the need for sustainable supply chains. Turns out you can even make money doing it. So here is my conversation with Andrian Grimar. Well, Andrian Grimar, welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Can we start out, please, by uh, just give me a brief history, a snapshot of Solidaridad? Sure. Solidaridad was created almost 30 years ago now, uh, when our executive director, Nico Rosen, was visiting a group of uh, coffee producers in Mexico and trying to figure out how um, the organization in its first um, kind of uh, lifespan uh, could could help support that community. And a farmer told him, I don't want charity. I want a fair price for my coffee. And um, so Nico then went back to the Netherlands and started working uh, with actors on the other end of the supply chain, uh, traders, processors, retailers, and together, over two years, put together um, the first fair trade label called Max Havilar, which is still existing today and in use in uh, Europe. And um, from coffee, 
um, we then decided that we wanted to tackle bananas and built up the supply of sustainable bananas and then went started going to importers in Europe um, to see if they wanted to take it to the retail market. And no one wanted to do it at the time. So we decided to create our own company called AgroFair, which started importing those fair trade bananas. And it still exists today, importing various um, fair trade and organic fruits from Latin America. Um, so from coffee and bananas, we're now working on 13 different commodities with 10 regional offices panning from China to India to Africa, Latin America, U.S., Europe, and um, with 300 staff members all over the world. And I think what differentiates us from other actors in this space is that we understand that we can't change a supply chain from either working on the demand or just on the supply side. So we're constantly working on both ends juggling that chicken and egg situation to motivate upstream actors to change behavior. You need demand from downstream and the downstream players on the other hand need a supply of what they want upstream. And it's a constant balancing act. And we're also always involved in the sector wide discussions and standard setting um, those discussions and platforms, groupings that bring both producers, processors, traders, retailers, around a table to discuss how to move forward. Those conversations are often very difficult and take years and are certainly imperfect, but they're absolutely necessary in our experience to create new alliances and new business models as well. Um, and just quickly to end, um, we've, been, um, we've done a lot of work with certification of commodities. And... It's a model that we um, use tremendously, and but that we've also seen its limits and have been working towards um, other ways of, of creating change, which I can elaborate on a bit later. Yeah, I do want to get into more detail about all the things you just mentioned. But before we do that, I want to ask you about you. How did you get into this world of sustainable supply chains? How did you come to the organization and become interested in this whole thing? Sure. Um, despite uh, coming from a family of dairy farmers, I never thought I would end up working on agriculture, environmental issues, on biodiversity and climate change, and eventually started working on focusing in on deforestation, uh, which is uh, about 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And within that project, um, this was in London, England, an initiative started by the Prince of Wales. Um, within that project, I became responsible to look at what were the drivers of deforestation and how they could be addressed. And agriculture is by far uh, the largest driver of, uh, of deforestation. So through that, I started looking at the palm oil supply chain and its impact on the Indonesian and Malaysian and African and South American forests. I started looking at the livestock supply chain and its impact on deforestation in Latin America. And I started working on the soya and cocoa supply chains as well. And I saw that there are solutions, right? That's the, that's the great thing. It's, we can, there's a lot of scope to increase productivity in sustainable manners. There's a lot of abandoned or decreated land that could be restored to become productive. And there's a lot of opportunity to reduce waste along the supply chain. So those are the three solution sets that could allow us to increase production 
of those commodities uh, in a sustainable manner. And But through all of those discussions around the world and on these different commodities, I was constantly coming across Solidaridad um, as one of the actors that worked on the ground with farmers, with producers, with the companies, and actually making those changes happen. So building the capacity of the producers to increase production. But it sounds like you were interested in sustainability from the very start. Did you just go directly into this business? You just knew that that was what you wanted to do? I did, yes. So let's talk about some of the er, some of the early work. You, you, you mentioned about coffee was the first. Was that indeed the first application of a fair trade label to coffee? Did Solidaridad uh, actually achieve that? Yes, yes, that is the case. Um, there were smaller volumes. In, in Europe, they're called um, third world shops or uh, here, um, you know, the equivalent of like global exchange, for example. These kind of stores were doing that same concept and taking out the middleman. But Max Havelar and uh, Solidaridad was the first fair trade label at scale. So really bringing it to the mainstream consumer. Now, when it comes to the bananas, it sounded like it was a bit of a surprise. Like you didn't set out originally to create your own company. You just couldn't find enough interest out there. So you had to actually do it yourself. Is that the case? Absolutely. And um, it was it's been a fantastic experience. We learned a lot in the process about the real challenges that businesses face. And um, and we were very successful. In, in fact, um, after investing about today's equivalent of 10,000 euros, we sold most of our shares for about 2 million euros. And we were able to reinvest that. And again, saw a gap in the market for sustainable apparel. So created, invested that those returns in creating a sustainable jeans company, which is called Kuyichi. So we have not been afraid to, to step in when we see there is a gap in the market. But it must have involved bringing in a certain level of expertise that you didn't have before, just running a company. Did you have to bring in people kind of out of the blue in order to do that when you found it was necessary to create these entities yourself? Absolutely. We did bring in people that had experience in the private sector. Um, and and also we we need what we've been able to attract and, and keep on board is somewhat kind of maverick personalities because we're in a sense – you're asking people to create a company, but create a company for which there is no blueprint, for which there is, at the beginning, no market. So you require people that not only have a business background, but also want to break some barriers and go on, on to new ground. And when it came to creating your own company, did you were there some surprises there? Did you learn some lessons about what it takes to run one of these, uh, one of these operations that you did not realize before you had to do it yourself? Sure. Well, I think w one example of our learnings is that, um, as I mentioned, we went from importing bananas. Uh, and their lesson learned is that as much as we want to leverage markets in the private sector, and we think that is the only way to achieve scale and sustainability of impact, is through embedding the change we want to see in markets. As much as we want that to be purely true, um, there is always, you always run into 
government policies, et cetera. And, and, and that can have an impact on what you're able to achieve or not. So, for example, at the, at the time when we created the company, there were restrictions on banana imports from non-African and Caribbean countries, uh, according to a trade agreement that was in, in place at that time. And so that limited the amount of banana that any single one company could import. So what we did is create 20 companies to be able to import the volume that we needed out of Ecuador. And while at the same time lobbying to change those, those trade policies. So that's one learning is that, you know, even as a private sector actor, you constantly have to engage um, with with government, especially when you're trying to achieve sustainable impact. And then um, uh, maybe a more you know practical uh, learning that we've had is when we went from selling bananas to selling jeans, um, you know we realized this was a whole other ball game. Uh, as I often say, you don't we you don't have to design bananas, but you have to design jeans. And you don't necessarily have to market bananas. That's been done, you know, about 100 years ago by Dole and Chiquita and the like. And But you do have to market and differentiate your jeans on the market, for example. So it was it required a whole different set of skills. Sticking with the apparel, or at least the fashion industry for a moment, tell me about Made By, which I believe was a not-for-profit organization that you also created. Sure. Um, that was created uh, to create a little bit of transparency. We were looking at um, the apparel sector as a sector that offered a large opportunity for a positive social and environmental change and saw that not only at the time, this is, I'm talking now 12 to 15 years ago, that there was no um, sustain- labeled or sustainable clothing on the market or very little, but not only that, that consumers had no um, venue in which to get information about the different practices of different companies. So we created Made By for companies to be able to assess where they rated on a number of, of, of metrics and share that information, share best practices, and have access to information and trainings on how to improve on different on these different aspects. So you had to come up with a kind of a platform for measuring sustainable met- sustainability, the metrics yourself, right? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, made by is not hard metrics as now we are seeing um, the HIG index, which is is gaining traction in the apparel industry. HIG index is is actually uh, more detailed and precise metrics. Made by was um, first attempt at doing that and and had a slightly softer criteria. HIG index is for the uh, Sustainable Apparel Coalition, right? That's correct, yes. I want to take a moment to tell you about Ryder Supply Chain Solutions. Ryder has nearly 80 years of experience helping companies in North America, the UK, and Asia transform their supply chains. Ryder provides a full range of services from optimizing day-to-day logistics operations to synchronizing the supply of parts and finished goods with customer demand. As supply chains become more complex, Ryder leverages five strengths to deliver the best in supply chain execution. Know-how? 
lean methodologies, a proven track record, deep expertise in key industries, and a breadth of resources. Visit Rider Solutions at rider.com. That's R-Y-D-E-R dot com. And now, back to the podcast. Do consumers care about this today? Do they care about where something was made? Excellent question. I think, um, unfortunately, it, it, some consumers absolutely do care, um, but it remains a niche market. And um, that is one of the limits to our theory of change that we've come against, right? That in order to change your market, uh, you ultimately need the demand side to change. And that hasn't, and consumers have not stepped up uh, to the extent that we were hoping they would. Um, there's very interesting surveys, both on uh, customers' willingness to buy uh, sustainable commodities, their willingness, their theoretical willingness, and then how they behave when they're actually in the store. And there's a huge discrepancy there. Um, so what we're seeing now is that certification remains a very important tool. And, and by that, it, well, both uh, in the supply chain, but also for the end consumer to identify sustainable products. A lot of consumers as well at the moment, uh, we're facing a kind of a label fatigue, so to speak. You know, consumers don't want to see a different label for the sugar, the cocoa, the coffee, for example, in a one, for example, ice cream brand. They either want choice editing, so they just want where they shop to provide them only sustainable products, or they want just one simple way to identify what is quote unquote good and bad. So there's there's that um, side of things on one hand. On the other end, you know, what we're seeing is that you need to provide other types of incentives or benefits to uh, the producers and the other actors in the supply chain. And for, to, for sustainable intensification, for example, or production. And that can be very simply by helping them improve productivity in a sustainable manner, by helping them improve quality, by helping them improve efficiency. If a producer spends, for example, is able to um, increase his yield by 20%, whilst reducing his pesticide and fertilizer applications by 30%, he will be better off. And that might be often a much more um, powerful, stable, and sustainable incentive to adopt to these good practices, much more so than fickle consumers in the West. As well, an, a changing dynamic is the emerging markets, right? Uh, so we're um, doing a lot of work in the palm oil and soy supply chains, for example, where above 70% of those commodities, um, more or less, are purchased by China and India. And where we're not seeing the pool for specific uh, certification schemes or sustainability criteria yet. So this is... A, this has is changing the dynamics of, of, of supply chain change as well. There's at least a perception out there, and I'd like you to tell me whether it's true or not, 
that sustainable products as a rule cost more. Certainly that's the case okay. a lot often with organic products in the agricultural or produce area. Is that the case? And if so, is that a challenge with consumers not being willing to pay more for a more uh, socially responsible product? So the question, uh, I mean, the answer <laughs> to your question is it depends. I think there is scope to create sustainable products that are the same price or cheaper by redesigning supply chains, by, as I mentioned earlier, increasing productivity and efficiency, by sometimes cutting out some unnecessary middlemen, right, by uh, bringing together two sides of the supply chains directly. So it's not necessarily more expensive. In other cases, it will be more expensive, but not necessarily forever. Maybe just during a transition period, where the an upfront investment needs to be made, for example, by a small farmer to replant his farm, which because it's aging, for example, as we're seeing in cocoa and palm oil, a lot of the farms and plantations are coming to the end of their lifespan and are becoming much less productive. Now, to avoid expansion to, for example, natural habitats and um, reducing incomes as well, we want to replant that. Now, there is an investment that needs to be made, but that will become economically viable in the medium and long term. So sometimes paying for sustainability is, is just a matter of getting us, all of us, all the actors across that, that initial curve. What about the challenge of scale? It's one thing to have a sustainable product from a small farmer somewhere, but if you're going to scale up production to a level, to a meaningful level that can actually sell, uh, you know, in, in a big box retail store, for instance, or sell in high volumes, is that an issue sometimes? All the time. That's a very interesting question. Um, we started working mainly with small producers uh, in coffee and bananas. And and our motivation then was largely socioeconomic. But as we and the rest of the world uh, realized that, you know, you can't achieve sustainable socioeconomic um, benefits without looking at the environmental side of things as well, we started integrating environmental considerations into our work. And there, actually, you can almost have um, greater impact if you work with the big guys, right? And so we are as well working with large producers, large plantation companies, as well as small uh, producers. And often, and they're not necessarily um, kind of opposed, they're actually often tied together. For example, um, in the palm oil supply chain, a plantation and milling company will also buy all the oil from its, the smallholders surrounding its plantation. So, so, so they're actually very often intertwined. And to achieve the systemic change, you need to engage both. Um, but one thing about scale is that we need to make massive investments um, to kind of, quote unquote, upgrade our supply chains, both at the farm level, at the processing level, at the transportation level, et cetera. And, um, and you know, the reality, unfortunately, is that the public or philanthropic funding on which, you know, organizations such as ours have been uh, relying 
um, is simply not going to be enough um, to achieve the scale needed that we need to achieve. We, at the moment, last year, we reached approximately um, uh, three quarters of a million of producers and workers. There's about 150 million smallholders in the world. So we need to massively scale our work and accelerate it. And that means tapping into um, other sources of funding. And by and large, when we're talking about supply chains, agriculture, textiles, gold, um, we're talking about private sector. And so it, it is logical for the private sector investments as well to come in. So this is, you know, I think the next phase in our work to um, to figure out how to leverage, how to create businesses that provide parallel or complementary services to ours at Solidaridad. And um, so we're increasingly working through public-private partnerships. And one example of that is our farmer support program, which um, deals with uh, five commodities. And it's it's using a 30 million euro or about 40 million US dollars um, grant by the Dutch government, but which is conditional on us leveraging almost twice that amount from private sector and other funders. Uh, so the total is uh, 70 million euros or about 90 million US dollars um, that we've successfully leveraged and raised and that we're currently in the process of injecting into uh, production systems for livestock, sugarcane, cotton, soya, and palma. I want to ask you about the private sector at the uh, consumption end. I want to ask about Uh the retailers and the big brands, the big CPG brands. Almost all of them talk all the time about sustainability and uh, their own efforts. They all have programs. But the question is, are those programs really uh, delivering? And are they living up to the commitments that they're making, at least publicly? Great question. So these actors, when they make these commitments, um, are ultimately dependent on a much greater number of actors um, to instigate changes. So... It's a challenge and um, for everyone involved. And, and I think we're at a particularly crucial point in time where, as a community, we need to be able to meet those commitments. And, and, uh, and this is where the pre-competitive conversations that happened uh, often on a commodity, commodity by commodity sector are very useful because it's it's, we need to figure out how to shift not only one company, but get that supply online for many of these different companies. And a lot of the commitments have been made by 2015 and 2020. So I think the next six years will be absolutely crucial in, in proving that it is feasible. Um, I, I think that um, a lot of them are making very significant steps towards their targets. Do you feel on the NGO side that organizations are sufficiently collaborating and cooperating? There are so many groups out there now addressing the issue of sustainability. It gets very confusing, and I wonder if there's sometimes overlap, sometimes redundancy, uh, sometimes just too many efforts, too many separate efforts. How well are all these groups working together on this right now? 
Yeah, great question. Absolutely. I mean, there is a lot of overlap, some redundancy, and, you know, just different perspectives as to um, how to get to the endpoint. I think there is general agreement that around the general um, goal, the end goal of sustainability, but the how to get there, um, people differ. And I mean, we, we, part, we do need competition. As much as competition can be a positive force in the private sector, it can be a positive force in um, the NGO sector, right? You need to have people working on the same issue to bounce ideas off or to, or to, that, to stimulate you to, to, become, to improve on, on your programs and, and theories of change. One thing is that we're seeing is that a lot um, of of organizations are making, can sometimes make uh, perfect the enemy of the good. And the reality is that when you're dealing with thousands, hundreds of thousands of actors and trying to steer them on a new path, change the process will be messy and will not be perfect from day one. And, um, you know, calling out actors that have stated their intention to go on that path towards positive change and perhaps not achieving it in the ideal way or fast enough, et cetera, rather than calling attention to the people that are not making those commitments and not trying, you know, I think that can have a very a potentially perverse impact on, on, um, on the change that we want to see. Well, there's so much more to talk about in this issue, and we'd love to revisit this with you at a later date to see how the organization is doing. But unfortunately, we're out of time right now. So I really want to thank you, Andrean Grimar, for telling us about your work at Solidaridad. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. A final word from our sponsor, Rider Supply Chain Solutions. Ryder has nearly 80 years of experience helping customers in North America, the U.K., and Asia transform their supply chains by delivering the best in operational execution. Ryder provides a full range of services from optimizing day-to-day logistics operations to synchronizing the supply of parts and finished goods with customer demand. Visit us at Ryder.com. Well, that was my conversation with Andrian Grimar of Solidaridad North America. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.